Welcome to the Joyful Nourishment Podcast. This is a podcast about our relationship with food and eating, body image, eating disorder recovery, mental health, and more. I am your host, Lynn Thorstensen, a registered nutrition therapist and body image coach based in the West of Ireland. And I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to another episode of the Joyful Nourishment Podcast. And today I'm here with Melanie Hargraves. Melanie is an experienced, curious, and compassionate dietitian who's interested in the way trauma can impact eating and body image. She's been qualified for over 10 years, and she blends her lived experience with this expertise to provide pragmatic and practical support for anyone struggling. And you can find Melanie on her Instagram, which is called at when traumas at the table. And that's where I have connected with Melanie in the first instance. And I'm a huge fan of her work. And I'm so excited to have this conversation around trauma, what it is we're talking about when we talk about trauma and also how trauma really can show up in ways that maybe we're not always was aware of or thinking about in relation to food eating and body image issues is that kind of is that how you would describe it Melanie and welcome to the podcast thank you yeah I love that that was a really nice introduction thank you and yeah likewise I'm very uh this is the first podcast I've been on where I've been uh where it's been me uh talking uh not on behalf of of anybody or anything so yeah thank you Thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I would say exactly that. I think um, it's 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 a topic I'm very passionate about. And I think you are what you said is really accurate in that. I think there is often a bit of a misunderstanding when we use this word. It, it's a word that I think has become there's much more understanding and awareness, I think, of trauma in the last maybe three to five years, but also comes with that, I think, some uh, misconceptions maybe about what exactly we're talking about when we use that word. What do we mean? What is the impact? And and so on and so forth. And so as, as grateful as I am for the increased kind of awareness and understanding, it also means that there are sometimes sometimes it allows for this like miseducation misunderstanding to come along as well so uh yeah, I, I agree with yeah. that yeah and it is so challenging I think when a lot of these conversations happen on limited platforms like social media where there's really limited space for these more in-depth nuanced conversations and where we are as good as it is to I think what you're saying like getting some more awareness out there we're also being fed like bite-sized bits and then we take those bite-sized bits through our own filters and lenses and make our own stories to what that might mean um but like if we were talking about like maybe we'll start here like when how do you think about it like when you see when you say trauma and like you know sometimes we hear this big t and little t could you kind of explain a little bit what these mean like what are we talking about then <laughs> yeah absolutely so we have um we have this uh we, we have these understandings I think of how we 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 think of trauma and this I and apologies I can't remember who first came up with this idea about the big t and little t trauma but 
what I would say, and, and and just to go back actually to something you were saying earlier, I think I think actually social media platforms like Instagram and TikTok, I think, have been really, really central to this big education around mental health. I really feel like it's been it's been really exciting to watch because it's been really driven from the ground up, not from the kind of top down. And that's been amazing. But as you say, it flattens a lot of the you know, such great platforms for awareness then lack often some of that discussion piece. And I think this is actually a really good point to flag is often there's then this 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 confusion around, well, what actually are we talking about when we talk about trauma? Um, in the medical field, trauma actually has like a, trauma means basically like wounding to body tissues. It means those kind of, you know, in the, in the medical world, if somebody has big impact trauma, they're talking about car accidents and they're talking about big multiple organ or, or, or large tissue damage. So it, it has a very specific wording there. When we're thinking about like psychological trauma, we, it, it kind of adjusts that definition. But by and large, what we're thinking about essentially is the same. We're talking about something that has big impact, big impact mentally, big impact emotionally, big impact psychologically. Um, the, the, the historical, I think, and the kind of more outdated understanding of trauma was that it comes from these big impact events big impact singular events and you know we think about things like being being in a fire or being in a car accident or being involved in a natural disaster um you know a big big event where you know everybody that looks at it outwardly can say that is going to make somebody struggle you know, that kind of, we could all look at situations like that and say, that is going to leave a lasting mark on somebody. And these historically, I think, have been those sort of singular events um, that really changed the path of someone's life that we all look at and say, that's a, that's a trauma. These would be what are referred to as like the, 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 the big T traumas. And for a long time, the understanding has been that these are the events that cause trauma. Very definitive, very kind of rigid, quite well marked out. Like these are the things that will allow you to have trauma. We will allow you to be traumatized by these events, if you will. And what's been really nice actually in the last like few years, and I mean, this work has gone on for for decades, but I think much more in the fringes is this understanding that actually So that way of looking at trauma is almost like looking at it objectively from the outside in. What what things do we think are large enough or big enough or impactful enough to have an impact? What what we've sort of moved to, this understanding of trauma is actually, it's much, much more subjective. It's about how it impacts you as a human being. And if we look at it through that lens, then we can begin to see that actually there isn't really any objective criteria. It's more about what is experienced as traumatic for that person. And along with that comes the understanding of what what we would now call like little t trauma, which are things that might not look big to outsiders, but have a huge impact on the person experiencing the event. And with that also the idea that it doesn't necessarily have to be this huge one singular event, but actually it can be 
the impact of stuff slowly over time that has a real mark. And when when we think about trauma, the way that the way that I sort of subscribe to thinking about it is that very subjective way. Um, you know, we're thinking about events or or sets of circumstances that basically that individual experiences is very overwhelming to them and creates lasting like adverse effects on their well-being going forward and I think that opens the door to like a much more expansive much more kind of inclusive understanding of like all the different things in our lives that we can experience in that way Um, and I think that bit about really overwhelming is important too because I also see um there's there's also I think a discussion about well then everything is traumatic if if we can then experience everything everything that's sad or upsetting to us is traumatic and I think that I think things that we experience as sad or upsetting have the potential to be traumatic but it's that piece around completely overwhelming your capacity and resources in the moment that that basically acts as that kind of defined defined line so so lots of things have the potential to be very traumatic yes but often what tips over into that is is it's not not necessarily all of those things um and it's about that sp- experiencing that specific set of events of something very overwhelming where you're not resourced enough and there isn't any resources outside of you um that that kind of defines that and what I like about the definition of this more expansive view is we're not gatekeeping that to only people that have been in a war or been in a natural disaster but we're saying anybody that's experienced that feeling yeah will understand yeah that's um that's yeah that feels more really expansive and I, I like what you said there as well like sometimes like we said well any, anything could be traumatic and anything has the potential to be traumatic to that individual, but it's really about how we are able to respond to the experience that we're having and how we are able to move, move through or uh, like from onwards, like move on from that is what I suppose I'm trying to say. And, mm-hmm. and that's been my understanding that for some people, even something that is maybe a bigger event, they are better resourced so they can, or they have better resources. They have maybe um, more, like more loving, caring relationships that can support somebody through that. Whereas for somebody else, it's a, maybe a smaller incident, but they have they're lacking that support system. So the healing that needs to take place after the traumatic event doesn't happen in the same way, right? Absolutely, and I think that's such a good way of describing it is it's 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 literally about what happens in the aftermath what happens in the during and what happens in the aftermath and I think as you say if you are a fairly resilient person with lots of things going well in your life and a very robust support system then potentially you have the ability to withstand quite a significant event and it will be it will be 
life-changing and it will be upsetting or sad but but you might not experience that as traumatic because ultimately you have all the tools and resources and support there to help you get through and make sense of that experience whereas as you say if you're maybe a lot younger or you don't have that support network around you that basically helps you in that moment then the capacity for a smaller event to be much more overwhelming and leave that mark I think is a lot higher yeah I am really curious then your Instagram is called when trauma's at a table so I'd like us to go in that direction what do you mean by that but also how do you sort of arrive at looking at this part around trauma and looking at it like how how it sort of manifests or shows up Mm. at the table which you know our relationship with food eating and and our bodies yeah yeah so it's it's a I think with anybody that ends up with with a with an interest or a passion in this sort of area I think it generally comes from a lot of personal personal experience in this in this space and I'm not really any different in that regard <laughs> to anyone else um my and I and I, and I won't go into it in this podcast because it's not not really <laughs> kind of relevant and would take up the whole time but um I had a fairly challenging and difficult difficult childhood and that is something that I would now look back on and and at the time I definitely experienced it as traumatic I just didn't have language for what it was um obviously now I can look back and 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 put words to that experience and I wouldn't say that it it it, it didn't come out in um one of the th- one of the ways that that basically manifested for me was a was a was and, and this touched on broader areas of my life, but was a it was a kind of an interest in um, wanting things to be similar and safe, and for me to know what was going on. And one of the ways that that came out for me was in wanting food to be similar and safe, and and knowing what was going on. And so it it was something that I kind of implicitly instinctively understood was going on for myself, but had no way of being able to make that make sense to other people. I I understood how it was happening for myself. I understood that I liked having the same food. I liked, I didn't like being thrown anything different out of nowhere. I didn't really have words for why or what, but I understood that there was a connection point. And part of that process meant that I worked with a dietitian as a teenager and that really opened my eyes. They were a fantastic dietitian and they really helped open my eyes to basically expanding uh, maybe how I thought of food. And I also had some, um, I would do a lot of kind of comfort eating, emotional eating, um, things like that. And, and basically working with this dietitian really helped me to kind of look at some of these behaviors and approaches and 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 change some of that. Um, and that that kind of interaction with that dietitian was was so impactful for me that I decided that was what I was going to do. 
as my job. So <laughs> I owe I owe my career and everything to to this dietitian. Um, she actually very sadly died in a car accident. Um, it was a long time ago now, about ten or fifteen years ago. But she was, uh, yeah, she was an incredible human being, and and yeah, I I she was yeah very kind of fundamental in the life and the career that I have now. So. Um, wow. thank you for yeah. sharing that <laughs> yeah I should Caroline Murphy and she was amazing um but yeah so I I I moved into this I moved into this career um basically with a with with lived experience of how transformational how much kind of shifting that relationship with food and to yourself can be on a really personal level and I felt very driven going into this training to be able to give that to other people. Um, I think a lot of dietitians are very highly motivated to do that for other people. It's one of the great skills in our profession, I think, and nutritionists that we have this really strong desire to kind of help people to experience that change and feel what that change can feel like. Um, And what I noticed when I kind of came out of the other side of my training and was actually working with individuals was noticing the ways that oftentimes you oftentimes there was almost a lack of understanding of all the other elements that might be going on in someone's life um and and the tend what I noticed was there was often a lot of focus around food and eating kind of as its own entity almost as if almost the problem was exclusively contained within you know any problems that people were having were exclusively contained within food and eating and bringing obviously what I knew from my own experience into those situations I often found myself thinking well you know but they're they've also said for example that they've been made unemployed and they're going to be without a home in the next few months and that they're depressed so it makes sense to me that these things are going to have this knock-on impact and it felt at the time this was you know probably 10 or 12 years ago now that there was not not this awareness of not this almost like there wasn't really this desire to really look under the carpet and and say what else might be going on here um and I think as I gained more experience and I worked with more people you'll probably know this as well the more you work with people the more you begin to see similar similar themes similar you know we we all share this common humanity experience and you notice that the more people that you work with and it was a thing that I just kept noticing again and again and again was I don't just to give you an example but you know sometimes there would be situations where you know, people would not be able to make a change, whether it be, um, you know, limiting binge eating episodes or, um, you know, reducing um, kind of compulsive exercise, for example, these things. And there would almost be this, this, this kind of frustration at the person of why they couldn't do the thing that we all were agreed was a good idea for them to not do. And, you know, I had this kind of view of, of, or this curiosity, I guess, of like, but there must be a reason why it's continuing. There must be a reason why this is happening because 
it, it just doesn't make sense that they would keep doing it if it wasn't doing something. And I think yeah. my own understanding of 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 the interconnectedness of my own situation really gave me, I think, that curiosity and that desire to be like, but we need to ask more questions and we need to know what's yeah. going on more. And that's really what what led to it. And and you know, with 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 seeing more with seeing more more clients and having more experience, also you'll know this too, but you you will occasionally you know occasionally you will hear stories that basically underline your your thinking like that actually yes in some people's cases there are these experiences that tie these things together and that really propelled me into going I think these things are more I don't think it's random chance that you know somebody might have had this very very distressing event being body shamed for example in ballet school when they're 10 and now here we are struggling with like decades of chronic dieting like I don't think these are random chance events I think these things have a root and that really sparked for me the curiosity and you know when you really you know when I started to look into the impact and um you know did did various reading on on trauma actually you begin to really see wow there's lo- actually loads of connections to eating in the body um just in a in a on a very sort of top line basis if we think about that the overwhelmingness the overwhelming feeling that we experience when something traumatic is happening it's not happening in our brain it's happening in our physical body and this is the exact same arena that all of our eating is taking place our digestion is taking place it's where it's what we're looking at when we're looking in the mirror so so even just on a very basic top line level, we're operating in exactly the same space. We're operating both in the body. And so it makes sense to me that if you've got if you've got unresolved trauma in the body and you've got this pro- these processes of eating and looking at your body and dressing your body, you're all basically in the same environment. These things yeah. are going to match up against each other. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever actually thought about it in that sense like that the two things being in the same arena I've definitely seen the the connection and also like in the sense like you know that yeah there's so many pieces that feeds into that space of how we relate to ourselves and if that was disrupted and then I feel as well like when we are um layering that on with with dieting then for example or dieting culture and I was thinking about this as I was listening to you speak. It's like, it's almost like when, when we are continue to focus on, I'd say, helping somebody pursue intentional weight loss or mm-hmm. somebody is invested in that, whether they, they're doing it on their own behalf or working with somebody. But like, it's, it's, it's kind of like, un- it's not until we actually lift the hood off that and place that somewhere else, we can access what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And I was, and from there, I was my, my next question was like, when you work with people and you're kind of like hold this mirror to show them those connections that they may not have made themselves like, what's, what's that process like? And what, what is, what, what are you noticing? Or what have you been observing in your clients? Like when they are starting to make some of these connections for themselves. Mm. 
Yeah, really great. And dieting is such is one I feel very passionately about. I think we give we give dieting a bit of a, a and kind of diet culture. We we give it a bit of a pass, I think, sometimes. And actually, if we really were to look at that, I mean, we, there are different types of, of 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 trauma that we can experience, of course. One of the types um, is is this idea of intergenerational trauma, this idea of this this traumatic experience that gets passed down and passed down in generations. And I really am passionate about the idea that diet culture is a form of that. If we think about the lineage of 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 mothers passing dieting, weight checking, body policing onto onto their children, not because they want to harm them, but out of like out of this concern for how their lives will be if they're not thin. But we can begin to see that as this real example of this trauma that just descends down generations and has a real impact. And so I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's 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 really interesting to think about the your experience of diet culture and 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 weight stigma and actually think about that through the lens of something that has been deeply impactful in your life um so so I'm glad I had the opportunity to mention that but definitely one of the things that I I often find very helpful to do when we're looking at our this is kind of one of my really foundational beliefs in this work is that behaviors that we do often serve an underlying function or need and we might not know on the surface what that need is that it's serving and I think dieting behaviors are a really fantastic example of this which is on the surface level we have well I would just like to lose weight I would just like to lose some weight and this is my method of doing it and it's very socially sanctioned because lots of people do this behavior. So I am, I'm not doing anything out of the ordinary. I'm doing what other people are doing. And I just would really like to lose some weight because then I'll feel better. And as you say, it's such a lovely analogy. I, I really enjoyed that. It's like, it's lo- looking under the hood of that and saying, what is this need serving? Where is this coming from? And what is it actually doing? And what I often find is that in the beginning, people often will attribute that need to something very superficial and top line, like I want to get into X bikini for this holiday. I have a wedding coming up and I just want to look a bit better for this wedding. And when you can really start to get under that and start to look at what are some of the origins of this? How long has this been going on for? What happens if you don't do it? And you you can begin that exploratory process of looking sometimes what you will find is that it has its roots in something far more impactful and and in and tied to something that's much more core to that person's identity and belief which is what's making it so hard for them to step away from it's not because they have a burning you know oftentimes it's not because people have this burning desire to be in a size 10 bikini it will often if you track all the way down Oftentimes it has its roots in some things that can be really, really traumatic when you get to them. Um, You know, I'm thinking things like childhood bullying overweight or parental commenting overweight, um, parents not picking kids up anymore because they're 
you know, quote unquote, too big ballet school comments, these sorts of things. You know, if you really dig down, these are actually quite fundamentally upsetting things and um, happening at an age where we're really young and maybe not very able to kind of understand in the broader context that this doesn't mean we're not okay as a human. It's just somebody's opinion of us. Um, So how they're experienced and what I often find is that in this in this work it's often about trying to to get to this understanding point of what need is it is it driving because actually if it's relatively easy to let go of getting into a certain size bikini for a holiday if we if we really sort of put our minds to it we can understand that actually it's not it's not a big thing in the grand scheme of things and we can let that one go but actually, if we track down to the idea that this is about proving our worthiness as a human to somebody who we really care about their opinion of, like a parent figure or a, a old teacher or schoolmates, peers, this sort of a thing. Well, now we can understand that this is actually going to be a lot more difficult to step away from. And maybe it's 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 not actually about getting to a specific body size it's actually becomes then maybe more a conversation about our worth and how we define our worth and if we're measuring it via our body size then we can begin to see why these things become so important become so hard we we get so caught up in that tangle of both simultaneously wanting not to do it and also feeling completely compelled to keep going uh, and that for me is is where I think the opportunity for really understanding and beginning to change behavior comes from. It's not something we can make happen. It has to come from really understanding some of those underpinnings. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense. And I, I had a conversation with somebody the other day, this is in a professional context and their client was kind of actually very similar to what you were describing. And I'm going to mention that because this might resonate with people where they're trying to like stop emotional eating or overeating, but the desire to lose weight is still really strong. And then they were saying, well, I can't, you know, eat different food variety and I end up eating a packet of biscuits because, you know, there's nothing else. And, and, and then when we talked about it, it was like, well, I really need to lose weight because I'm going to this holiday and I want to get in the pool with with my um, my son and I I can't I can't do it and then we're kind of like unfolded the conversation it really felt like underneath that was like I'm not my body isn't acceptable I cannot accept my body because I think it is xyz and I just it's just like that kind of the barrier towards like accepting things as as they currently are felt like it was just too much I cannot this cannot be the body I'm supposed to have yeah and I I don't know if you if you have this happening um in your clinical space but I've definitely seen that it's like and that brings up so much then it's like but what does that mean if this is my body? Well, this is the way it is right now in this moment. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the next moment or in five years from now or three months from now or any, if, if something will change because that's how things go, right? But yeah. it's like that sense of what do we, 
even when we know that okay then and and it's almost like well why where did that belief come from like that this kind of body is so unacceptable yeah that it's like we have to do something different and then we're at that odds where well what I'm doing isn't working because it's giving me xyz side effects from trying to restrict the food intake like binging or overeating or just feeling miserable or hungry all the time or any of those pieces so like where if somebody's finding themselves like stuck in that place it's like but this this cannot be what I'm like meant for and maybe realizing right then well why am I feeling like that what's tied to that and, and I think one of the things that's very common among, uh, and I'm not saying in that person's case necessarily that it's that it's trauma, but just an observation is that oftentimes a very common thread that underpins people that have experienced trauma, regardless of where it's come from, is a strong desire for the same, for things not to change, for change to be viewed with a level of suspicion and a level of fear, because what if it's a bad change? What if it's a bad change, like a bad thing that's happened already? And I am always interested when things that come up basically bring up that feeling of of kind of distress and panic and feelings of too much and can't cope. Because, again, if we look at what trauma is, it's too much, overwhelming. I can't cope with it. It's, It's too big. It's that same. It has those same underpinnings. And so it's 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 indicative to me of that that this requ- this requirement to accept a thing that you feel is too much is possibly touching on something that has brought up a similar feeling of too much and you don't really want to go there because it's starting to press on something that feels really difficult and oftentimes there is almost an Im- I'm not going to say an embracing of stuck because stuckness is not a comfortable position to be and I don't think anyone wants to be there but it's but it but oftentimes it's preferred over the unknown step. Mm, yeah, <laughs> um, good point. I think that's more deeply I think everyone experiences that. I think it's a very human instinct to move towards what we know and what feels kind of comfortable, but I think you see that more entrenched in people that have not always had good experiences of change that they fear change they can't go into it with a more ambiguous open-minded we'll see it's like I have to know that it's going to be okay and if I can't guarantee that it's good then actually I'll stay here and that kind of real resistance fear of of exploring that can often again not everyone will have this experience but if they've had a very traumatic experience where something changed and was negative and had this lasting impact you can see how the like reverberations of that will really bring in some resistance to the idea of embracing an unknown embracing an unknown body embracing a body that could go in lots of different you know well how how much will it grow will it will it you know, all of those questions that come up, I think, can sometimes be really amplified in people that have had these negative or not great experiences, very impactful experiences of of unknown, of change, of things that they they can't control the pace of necessarily. So that makes sense. And it almost sounds like with this person, 
like that they had sort of created this double bind for themselves, wanting something different, but still holding on to desire weight loss, but then not being able for, you know, the different reasons we know where it's usually not possible to actively pursue dieting for a long period of time and maintain it that it's just kind of like a double bind well then I'm like eating the stuff that I think a part of me says I shouldn't be eating so then I'm like I'm not changing in any direction really actually (laughs) you know and it's just uncomfortable but that kind of keeps us relatively safe as well because they're just creating this double bind that doesn't break in any direction really yeah and I really love the way you describe that, actually, because from the outside, you can look at that behavior and it seems incredibly time consuming and frustrating. Why? Why? You know, as an outsider, you might look at some of that and say they just need to move one way or the other. Just get off the fence. Just either decide you're going to throw all your, throw yourself behind the weight loss or embrace a new body size. Holding both is madness. What are you doing? you know, this, 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 and then, and then as you say, but actually if you introduce, and again, this is a really important central part really of what, what trauma often orients itself around is what keeps you the safest. People will rigidly, and and again, and I think this is where having, where I really care about this topic so much is because it's, when you can understand what is organizing people's behavior and when we think about anything you know oftentimes we are we're very similar as humans and we have very basic central needs and one of those needs is to be safe and if we can if we can understand that and we can make sense of that, suddenly behavior makes a lot more sense. And actually, as you say, this is a beautiful way of explaining that, which is actually that as 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 weird and hard and time consuming as all of those behaviors, juggling all of those behaviors look, if we think about it from the concept of what's keeping them the most safe, actually all of that starts to make a lot of sense because yeah. There is, they are expressing the desire to be smaller, which is a safer view to hold in society. And then we also have the simultaneous desire for what probably will bring them more, less bodily based stress, which is relaxing up on some of those rules, relaxing up on some of that restriction. It's like they're actually aiming for max safety. They're just not getting it in any different direction. But but by holding all of those ideas, they're getting as much of it as they can without actually changing. Yeah. That that, that helps to make some of that behavior actually make sense. And we could begin to think about, well, how is this person trying to keep safe? Yeah. And I find as well, when you, when you do the work with people and you can help people see that for themselves, we can bring so much more compassion to ourselves sometimes both as practitioners, you know, navigating all this ambivalence and this, this, you know, when you're kind of go, oh, why is like, because like you said, from the outside, it's like, get off the fence, like do one or the other at least, you know, <laughs> but it's just like not that easy. But also I find like sometimes when you're, when we're able to support people in making those dots for themselves, we can bring so much more compassion towards ourselves and while we might be engaging in some of these behaviors, even when we've come to the realization that they're not helpful and we want to do something different, 
why we still keep coming back to them or why it's difficult to build new ones because it comes back to this sense of trying to keep ourselves safe yeah it's it's why I feel so passionately about having a trauma-informed view of how we look at eating and food and body image concerns is because it allows for that compassion to come in both for ourselves as a practitioner towards our clients but also and most importantly I think for our clients for themselves because if we are frustrated by our own behavior and we can't really understand it 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 means we are much more liable for self-guilt, aberration, shame. I don't understand why I can't change this behavior. I've tried so many times. I've tried so many things. I just don't understand. It, we have all this frustration, anger, upset, all kind of going around. When we can open that door to saying, well, what if we look at it as ways you've kept yourself safe? What are the ways with everything that you've been through in your life, what are the ways that you have worked to keep yourself as safe and as together as you can be? Suddenly we're able to look at some of those same behaviors. We, we, we're able to open the door to that, to access that part of us that can actually say, this has actually been a way I've really tried hard to keep myself afloat or to get myself through difficult circumstances. You can begin to see, oh, okay, so this is why I'm doing this. And actually when we have that, it's so much easier then to find that compassion to go, this is, this has been a thing I've had to do at times in my life. And, and, and I'm not going to keep heaping on the the guilt and the shame. And I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I, in my experience, what I find is when we can access some compassion for the ways we've acted for ourselves in our lives, it that tends to be the door that it tends to be the door that leads to an acceptance of the behavior, an understanding of why it exists, and an acceptance of the things that we've we may have needed to do in the past. And I think when we get there, it's so much easier then to look with a really compassionate eye towards, well, how do we want things to go going forwards? Not with a specific view or ways of stopping a certain thing, but it just means that rather than rather than that be getting stuck in that real shame, guilt, blame cycle that ultimately doubles you back down on the behavior, yeah. it gives you just that ability to actually look in a, in a really compassionate way and say, this has worked up until now, and this has been what we've done up until now, and this has got me here. And, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm great, grateful and I'm glad we got here and we did what we had to do. And now that I'm here, there's a chance to look at how I might want things to go moving forwards. And I just find that to be a much, um, a space that opens the door to a lot more change than rigidly focusing in on behavior and, and, and techniques around that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's it's almost like when you've created that space and you've had the opportunity to look how these things have served you in the past with that compassion lens, then you can start bringing in the focusing on changing the behaviors and giving new tools and practices that yeah. can help and expand ways of coping or, or basically like dealing with life and being a human. Yeah. <laughs> that may feel better aligned with where the person is right now and where they how they want to live their life moving forward. Because 
yeah. often at the point where you know any any person who's working in this space with uh, helping people heal their relationship with food eating in their bodies is like most time people come in the door because they reach the point where what they have been doing whatever that has been it's it's becoming too painful and it's not it's still keeping them maybe safe but it's just it, the cost of that is now too high to where they've been before and so they are ready but it's not you still kind of you still have to bring in that compassion somewhere in order to to kind of then create the space for the other things to land somewhere yeah and I I don't know if you've you've um noticed this or, or or observe this but one thing that I often observe is that oftentimes a lot of these behaviors that people use whether it be binging or purging or or restrictive eating or compulsive exercising these different things they're often old they're often old skills that have you know it's not new things people have picked up in the last six months two years these will have their origins back to a much earlier version of themselves and going back to the compassion piece I think it's we can have compassion for that really early version of ourselves that had limited resource and basically had to work go with what worked at the time that also then is a really lovely thing that we can then look at in the current moment to say you know I've got different opportunities now I'm a different person now I'm 10 20 years down the line I have all this other wealth of experience and knowledge about life about myself about what works for me about what I my values what I care about and it's almost like that really nice window for a reappraisal of some of that stuff do I still want to bring this with me maybe I still do actually but maybe I bring it with me as a backup maybe I bring it with me as a in in last chance saloon <laughs> you know but maybe there's opportunities to look at other ways that might be more beneficial more of the time that don't come with as you say some of these high costs and I think that is like is feels to me like a much more compassionate way of looking than being in that mindset of we we kind of need to just really focus on eradicating this behavior almost to the exclusion of all those other elements and I know you work in that way um that kind yeah. of realistic view <laughs> at least that's how it comes across no I'm joking <laughs> I do <laughs> I do work in that way because I do feel like <laughs> I mean like when I listen to people and I know as well I've done it myself and I still do it at times it's like we're doing something then we're not trying to do that things and then we find ourselves doing it and then we judge ourselves because we did the thing that we thought we shouldn't be doing and we told ourselves we shouldn't be doing so (laughs) then that judgment is like that stick then we just pick up and just like continues to hammer down on ourselves and Mm. I have asked people how helpful is that Mm. most people say she's not really that helpful (laughs) <laughs> right it's like when I think about it but then you know like if we have such a loud inner critic most of the time like we don't even hear it we're not even aware that that's what's going on because we're so used to that ongoing relentless criticism and judgment of ourselves with anything we do that it's just like a con- continuous background noise yeah so then when you point it out it's like yeah and I and then alongside that I feel 
like with compassion like maybe it's getting better and the conversation around self-compassion but that there's this myth that just needs to really like go that (laughs) being harder on ourselves kind of works Mm. like if it worked it would have worked a long time ago and it's just not really like motivating I think I don't know like it's some I don't know where we pick up this maybe it is in our capitalist patriarchal society that like being hard on ourselves is some somehow motivating and that if you're actually kind to ourselves we're just going to slack off yeah like what's wrong with that but anyway (laughs) it's just like we just like because it feels like and when I listen to you talk about this like meeting ourselves in that space with compassion to through that lens of understanding how these things have served us with the root of whether it's a small t or a big t or continuous small t's for a long time mm-hmm. and we can actually then just the energy is so different yeah. and the space from where we're making choices going forward and even when we are reverting back to old behaviors it's just easier to move forward again to pick ourselves up because we are now really supportive of ourselves in our own process yeah and actually that that's a good a good um point that I I would like to just make if we've got time is we one of the really good examples of of so-called little t trauma is relational trauma it's it's interpersonal trauma so things that have been enacted on you by other people and we know that oftentimes what can be it's often those closest relationships to you that have the most meaning and the most significance where if there is rupture and trauma in that relationship we experience that it's very traumatic and especially the younger we are with more influential figures in our lives thinking parents thinking teachers family members and so on and it's sometimes where we get that really strong inner critic from is because actually back when they had much more influence in our lives it actually really benefited us to strongly drive and police our own behavior to avoid problems with other people so in this way we can see how the origins of that starts well and but as you say very quickly becomes this second nature invisible voice in our heads that we don't even really recognize are there and can become such a driving factor. And one of the things that I think is interesting with stuff like that is how we almost then reenact that relational trauma on ourselves, almost like unconsciously, like we're not even really sure we we're doing it. We don't even really know we're doing it. And so it's sometimes for people, and I, I don't know if you've had had clients similarly, but sometimes people are learning compassion for the first time. They're learning it. They've not had that experience of like what a compassionate voice sounds like. Um, one of the things that I often ask my clients, actually, when we're talking specifically around body image, is to ask, what, who taught you to hate your body? And and people can give you a million and one examples, the magazines you read when you were 14, the MTV videos you watched growing up, you know, Kate Moss, like all these, all these examples. 
with people. And then I always like to turn that question on its head and say, and who taught you how to love your body and look after your body? Um, and oftentimes it's it's crickets. It's people are like, uh, and you might people might come up with like a vague auntie who they knew who never tried to diet, but it will be, it will not be the same strength, the same impact. And so I think that's interesting because it we know that things like compassion, and this is what I enjoy so much about this sort of work, is compassion isn't a thing we're born with or we're not born with. It's not a thing that we have or we don't have. It's a skill. And the joy of it being a skill is it's learnable from nothing. You have to find somebody who can show you what that looks like, but it's a totally learnable, trainable skill. And you can begin to learn that for yourself. And again, this is one of the things we're having, I think a trauma-informed lens is quite helpful, is understanding that some people just might not have had that before in their lives. They may not have had a person in their lives go easy on them or show them that it doesn't need to be hard and punishing all the way. And I think this is really something that, you know, ultimately benefits in our favor as well as practitioners, right? It it, it means that we also have to be modeling this and we have to be compassionate yeah. towards ourselves because in a way we might be the we might be the first person modeling for somebody what does compassion for your body look like what does compassion yeah. for your behaviors look like yeah yeah and thank I, you for bringing I, up that I, around I, relational trauma as well because I feel like that might be one of the biggest pieces of trauma that shows up in this space around our relationship with food eating in our bodies yeah and around the table definitely and actually just to throw one more in that I think may be relevant for people that listen to your podcast is also the experience of things like um like medical trauma and you know if we think about things like weight stigma um and kind of body commentary I think that shows up a lot in this space too oftentimes people have been really harmed by that and to be critical also some people in our own profession um you know a lot of nutritionists and dietitians out there that are quite weight and body shaming when it comes down to it and so I think it's it's being mindful of these of these factors as you say the relational trauma element um, ultimately I see our role as we work I work and I, I'm sure you do as well but it's about working in a very relational way and that heals that sort of trauma yeah, um, yeah. so it's, it's it's also again being mindful of the experience people might have had in in a medical profession sometimes with people very similar to us or who do the same roles as us so these these things are all going to come into the to the to the room with us these things are all things people bring with them um and it's and it's 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 being mindful of all of that I think yeah I I think so and I think um yeah like and I think sometimes we forget particularly for those of us who come from a nutrition background like how important the therapeutic encounter is in, in and of itself if we can work in that relational way that that is actually as healing or more healing than anything we say or do in specific like what you've talked about behavior changes or nutrition education or 
advice or you know any that kind of whereas like that relational piece is so important um and that's for me that's that's the joy of doing the work as well to be sitting and working alongside or doing credible humans so that are you know teaching us so much as well I I feel like our clients are some of our biggest teachers so I'm always so grateful for them so Melanie I think this has been I have really enjoyed this conversation and I think there's loads of great wisdom for people to take away from this so Mm -hmm. as we are coming to a close I like to ask my guests um what joyful nourishment mean to you and how you joyfully nourishing your, nourish yourself mm. uh that's a good question I what does joyful nourishment mean to me I think for me it is the interplay of what what we need to give our bodies and what we we can give our bodies in terms of we can give it that joy and that pleasure and being able to choose that you know it's a privilege and a luxury to be able to choose to 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 eat in that way and um I think it's great to have the option always to 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 make things to eat nourish yourself in a way that's what your body needs but actually what you can enjoy as well I think pleasure and satisfaction are hugely overlooked elements of food that are are very important um yeah in terms of how I have been doing it for myself I how I do do it for myself I actually just came back from uh I I boulder which is a type of rock climbing and I did that last night I go with a group of friends and I absolutely love that that feels for me like such a way to honor my body in terms of it being strong and capable and functional. And I really love the challenge that that brings and the reminder of how strong like we are and we can be. Um, so, so that, um, and I have a rescue dog that I love a lot. She's, she's great. And taking her for walks is also very nourishing for me. Um, and, I will forever hold a space in my heart for the combination of cheese and carbs. So (laughs) mac and cheese, pizza, that for me, that for me is about as joyful as food can get. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, there's something about that fat and carbohydrates combination. Yeah, that is just really good. Really good. <laughs> and where can people find you, Melanie, if they want to connect with you further, have a look at the work that you do? Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, my Instagram page is where I'm mostly at. So um at when trauma's at the table. And I have got some I've got various posts on there and I've even got a few, I think probably a bit further down the page now that look at resources for people. If they want to think about this idea um, in more depth, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. So, um, you know, I'm just a dietitian with a passion for it, but I've got some links on there to some, to some books and podcasts. So for anyone who's listening, if, if you think that maybe, uh this has relevance for you and for your own experience then 
then there's some bits on there that I could recommend and I could drop you a couple of links as well if you wanted yeah I'll put some links in the show notes as well for people to follow up on and yeah I think your Instagram page in and of itself if people go there and actually take some time to go to your actual page and scroll and read the post there's a lot of thought-provoking and informational content there I think in around this space and I think it's I mean, I would say this as a prof- as a nutrition professional myself that yes, we're not psychologists or psychotherapists, but there is something that the importance of nutrition professionals and dietitians to be trauma informed and really understand these how people's different lived experience shows up in our relationship with food even if we're not working in the space of eating disorder or recovery, for example, I think is really um, important. So, and I think for anybody, I think just like going through and and learning from your content and what you put out there, I think will help just to start broaden that way of thinking. And I I think that's super valuable. So thank you so much again, Melanie, for coming on board and for, for, being part of the podcast no thank you for having me it's a great podcast um so yeah i feel very honored to be to be on it thanks for listening the joyful nourishment podcast is produced with no financial backing and your support means a lot to keep this project going if this episode has been helpful in any way please consider liking subscribing or leaving a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on This helps the podcast to be found by others. And of course, you can also forward this episode to a friend whom you think may benefit. Find out more about what I offer on straightforwardnutrition.com. And if you're interested in working with me, please use the link in the show notes to book in for a free initial 30-minute session. And finally, please come and join the Joyful Nourishment community over on Substack unless you're there already by subscribing to my newsletter using the link below.